Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm Monica Bellavin. Today, we delve into Johannes Itten's exploration of color, the theory and practice of which formed a core element of the Bauhaus's introductory course. While only parts of it would linger in the teachings of Kandinsky and Albers, following Itten's departure, his views on color remained a seminal influence within the Bauhaus and beyond. Color occupies a unique place in human interaction with the world, in no small measure because of how it operates at once in the subjective and objective realms. Factually speaking, color is a subjective phenomenon. We see it only because the rods and cones in our eyes send signals to the brain that then interprets various wavelengths of visible light as discrete and distinct tones. Color will always be an internally generated perceptual phenomenon. It does not have physical, external existence or carry the consequences of other perceptible qualities, such as size and weight. As Itten puts it, when we say this bowl is red, what we are really saying is that the molecular constitution of its surface is such as to absorb all light rays but those of red. The bowl does not have color in itself. Light generates the color. Take the classical example of billiard balls. When set in motion, the mass and shape of the balls will have direct physical consequences for interaction. Their colors will be visible to us and do affect how we interact with them, but they do not properly exist within and act upon the external physicality of the world. Our subjective perception is, however, directly linked to the objective facts of reflected light. Much of Itten's design philosophy is based on contrast between opposites. While he does not mention it explicitly, this contrast between objective and subjective, with the realm of color occupying a spectrum between both, is central to how design situates itself between art and science and inherent to the challenge it presents us with. Expounding on this aspect of connection, Itten wrote in The Art of Color that The word and its sound, form and its color, are vessels of a transcendental essence that we dimly surmise. A sound lends sparkling color to the spoken word, so color lends physically resolved tone to form. Because color requires both the objective and the subjective to exist, it does so at and as an interface of life, existing only wherever consciousness, perception, or expression are present. Itten says plainly that color is life, and his book examines both the personal and universal implications of this. He states that teaching is like a carriage, and that he will be attempting to convey the student of color along a road, far enough to reach the edge of an untrammeled wilderness where the pupil must then disembark and explore all on his own. He begins with a brief overview of the history of color, its understanding and expression, and its physical properties. He summarizes Newton's experiments and includes a table showing which colors correspond to what frequencies of light, with red beginning at 800 nanometers and violet ending at 390. He touches on the art of the ancients, going so far as to claim that, 
in pre-Columbian Peru, the use of color was distinctly different for distinctly different cultures. Symbolic for the Tiahuanaco, expressive or emotive amongst the Paracas, impressional or strictly visual in the Chimú. Following the Roman period and into the Middle Ages, has historical records become more detailed, he calls out to specific instances of artists and their use of color. He also alludes to the topical contributions of Schopenhauer and Goethe, whose color theory will figure prominently later in the book. Starting with the Impressionists, he mentions how color was used by various art movements. Along with Kupka, Delaunay, Malevich, Arp, and Mondrian, he includes himself in the Art Concrete movement, lasting from 1912 to 1917, asserting that, just as industry and technology found themselves engaged in projects that abstracted from the natural and historical worlds, this new art movement reached towards the pure, conceptual aspects of color and vision. And so, the paths of science, industry, and art were bouncing off each other in ways one might not first expect, in keeping with the underlying theme of the transcendental relationship between objective and subjective, the 19th century is shown to be a time in which what was once thought to be patently subjective, color, yes, but also sound and harmony, was brought within a framework of objective understanding. Color, of course, would face considerable resistance in this transition. Some even felt that to analyze color scientifically would undermine the artistic impetus. But Itten stressed that, much as a musician must temper inspiration with analysis to produce works of significant depth, the study of color should enrich and enliven the visual arts. In wrestling with this issue, he quotes the painter Delacroix's comments on 19th century art pedagogy. The elements of color theory have been neither analyzed nor taught in our schools of art, because in France it is considered superfluous to study the laws of color, according to the saying, draftsmen are made, but colorists are born. Secrets of color theory? Why call those principles secrets, which all artists must know and all should have been taught? Itten follows this quote by again affirming the necessity for contrast. He holds that when an artist works intuitively, he withdraws scientific principles like a tortoise pulling his limbs into a shell with the defensive reaction of the artist toward scientific reasoning being rather clearly implied. But would it be better for a tortoise to have no legs? This science is, after all, presumed to be something that all artists inherently possess. They must simply make use of it. Tellingly, Itten's anecdote involves the internal, the external, and the operative connections between them. In a very direct sense, his color theory is just such an attempt to coax the legs out of the artist's shell. The first analytic section of the book involves color harmony, with its main thesis being that combinations which mix and recombine to a neutral color appear to be harmonious when juxtaposed, while combinations that do not recombine to black, white, or gray are emotive or expressive in character. This is the basic idea behind complementary colors, simultaneous contrast, and other principles of composition he will explore later, 
and it draws heavily on the theoretical work of Goethe. Among other phenomena, the poet had observed that, because colors have varying degrees of value or brightness, a harmonious combination of, say, yellow, red, and blue should contain non-equal proportions so as to mix harmoniously. With yellow being brightest and blue darkest, Goethe recommended a yellow-red-blue ratio of 3, 6, 8. Notably, the complementary color combinations that recombine to neutral show specific geometric relations when displayed in a color circle. Yellow, red, and blue form a triangle when connected. The complementary combination of red-orange, violet, blue-green, and yellow forms a square. Colors adjacent to each other on the circle are not complementary, but only the combinations of those opposite them. Itten designates the geometric shapes that are formed in the connection of these opposites as color chords. A square, rectangle, isosceles, or right triangle may be drawn on a color circle, and in rotating the circle, as a pitch pipe goes around all root notes, the various permutations of basic color harmonies are revealed. It is even possible to create harmonies that contrast with one another. Yellow-red-blue, for example, which is formed by a right triangle, is 180 degrees opposite violet-green-orange, becoming the rough equivalent of a musical key change where the harmony is consistent, but the notes are distinct. While on the subject of harmony, Itten immediately tilts into the realm of the subjective. He relates a story of how empirical investigation led him to a new world of subjective exploration in his studio classes. By 1928, he was once again a solo instructor, this time in Berlin. His class was working through the kind of harmonic color combinations we have just described when, after about 20 minutes, it became very restless. He asked what was wrong, and it was reported to him that we all think that the combinations you assigned are not harmonious, so we find them discordant and unpleasant. He then asked them each to paint whatever combination they found pleasant. The class stilled down immediately, all eager to prove to me that my color combinations were wrong. Astonishingly, each student produced results that showed closely similar combinations, but with each student's work being very different from that of the others. Elsewhere in the book, it is mentioned that individuals with a preference for a certain color tend to have greater acuity for that color's perception. Itten had observed that someone whose subjective harmony includes a lot of blue will be capable of perceiving a greater variety of shades and tones in blue than someone whose subjective harmony is of a different palette. He is also quick to stress the difficulty of investigating subjective color. Anyone who works with color in his vocation is likely to have difficulty in discovering his subjective colors. Again, early attempts at color combinations are frequently wish fulfillment. Subjects paint their complementary colors or combinations in commercial vogue instead of reflecting themselves. This point raises one of the most significant challenges in the design process. The subjective needs to be addressed. If it were not, design would be no different from engineering, where everything becomes amenable to calculation. But Itten argues that any calculated plan, then, 
will not be the ruling factor. Intuitive feeling is superior to it, navigating the realm of the irrational and metaphysical, not subject to number. Deliberate intellectual construction is the conveyance that carries us to the portals of this new reality. The leap of faith into judgment on the subjective while using an objective frame is what distinguishes design from engineering. If the approach to this subjective realm is hyper-rationalized, what will be reflected in the results is not authentically subjective, but a mirror of what the designers have taught themselves is correct. Of course, even if what is authentically subjective is attained, it raises a new crop of questions. Decorators and designers sometimes tend to be guided by their own subjective color propensities. This may lead to misunderstandings and disputes, where one subjective judgment collides with another. For the solution of many problems, however, there are objective considerations that outweigh subjective preferences. A meat market may be decorated in light green and blue-green tones, so that the various meats will appear fresher and redder. If a commercial artist were to design a package for coffee bearing yellow and white stripes, or one with blue polka dots for spaghetti, they would be wrong, because these forms and color features are in conflict with the theme. Again, he argues that it is the exchange, or the dialogue, the mixed contrasting of objective and subjective that leads to best results. Another interaction between the general and the personal is shown by Itten's criticism of the contemporary habits in modernist architecture. Nowadays, architects frequently put up great blocks of dwellings in uniform colors. They should realize that only people of corresponding color sense will enjoy these quarters, and that all others will be more or less repelled. Uncongenial colors may constitute a severe stress upon sensitive individuals. Is not generality of well-being a more important aim than an aesthetic unity? His conclusion for the chapter is, in any case, that subjective taste is not sufficient for the solution of all color problems, and so something must yet be said for the objective factors involved. The most primal amongst them are the seven color contrasts, which consist of Contrasting hue, light and dark, cold and warm, complementary contrasts, simultaneous contrast, which involves retinal fatigue and afterimage, contrast of saturation and contrast of extension, or proportion of surface area. Beginning with hue, this is where Itten presents us with his own famous color wheel. Extending beyond previous models, it places the pigmentary primary colors, yellow, red, and blue, at the center, surrounded by the three secondary colors, green, orange, and violet, and with a full 12-tone circle, including the primary, secondary, and tertiary colors, all present in the outer arc. Underscoring how analysis by color circle was neither novel nor exceedingly deterministic, Itten mentions how Delacroix whose coloration was so admired by the studiously intuitive Impressionists, kept a color circle mounted on his wall, labeled with possible combinations. 
In his discussion of Cold Warm Contrast, Itten tacitly reveals a pronounced influence from Taoist philosophy. He lists another series of contrasts which he feels verbalizes the qualities expressed by cold and warm colors. Cold warm, shadow sun, transparent opaque, sedative stimulant, rare dense, airy earthy, far near, light heavy, wet dry. However fitting it may be, one would expect that wet versus dry is not a contrast usually associated with color temperatures. What this does bring to mind, though, is the only slightly different list of contrasts that form the basis for the Taoist principle of the unity of opposites. Several works of the Tao-inflected Shan monks are explicated by Itten in a section on light-dark contrast, making it apparent that his interest in Eastern philosophy had a constructive influence on his applied theory. Within each part of it, examples from contemporary or historical painting are included, showing instances of how the principles are evident in a given work by a notable artist. Monet's painting of the Houses of Parliament in Fog is discussed in the section on cold warm contrast, yet, as in each of these paintings, Itten cannot restrict himself to analyzing just a single aspect of the theory. In the Monet, it is the color of shadows that calls his attention. He notes that, because the Impressionists were so keen to empirically render nature as it appeared to the eye, they noticed coloration and shadow that previous generations had missed. The painting consists of a warm, orange-red sun suffusing a smog-filled sky with a glowing corona that reflects on the river's waters. The hazy mass of the backlit parliament building is indicated by a purple-blue shadow that melts into the surroundings. Not only is this a very effective example of contrast of color temperature, and one that manages incredible expression with just two colors, it also indicates the complementary and simultaneous contrasts. Complementary contrast is the harmony or sense of balance that arises when two or more adjacent colors mix to a neutral. This is an objective recombination. Simultaneous contrast, on the other hand, a phenomenon that Goethe also analyzed in his own color theory, is a subjective recombination resulting from retinal fatigue. If a small square of a neutral color is placed within a larger square of a solid color, the neutral will appear to be tinted to the complementary color opposite of a large square. If, however, a small amount of the complementary color is placed around the neutral, this will balance out the fatigue in the eye, and perception of the neutral will return to its objective state. The same physiological reaction can be seen if you stare at a fixed point for about a minute, and then look at a white surface or something rather like a photographic negative, will seem to hover out in front of you. This phenomenon of color opposites is present in every image that we see, though at varying levels of intensity. While looking at a single image, simultaneous contrast will change how adjacent colors appear with relation to each other. The designer that bears this in mind can avoid unwanted consequences and encourage interesting effects. A small amount of solid red 
surrounded by a large field of variegated green, will seem far more intense than the exact same solid red surrounded by various tones of blue. The objective relations of the color opposites trigger subjective responses in the retina that affect and alter how we perceive the color. Eaton relates a story where simultaneous contrast once had serious financial consequences. During his time teaching private studio classes in Berlin, he was also a consultant for a silk company. The manager of one of the weaving mills desperately called his attention to a few hundred meters of expensive Thai silk that wouldn't sell because a black stripe on a red background looked greenish instead of black. The effect was so significant that customers insisted that the yarn was green. Itten advised that, if they had asked him earlier, he would have advocated using a slightly brownish color instead of full black, thereby reducing the effect of the simultaneous contrast. Alternately, a small green stripe would have also returned the black to neutral. If there is one place within Itten's color theory where the dance steps of objective and subjective strike us as being hopelessly confused, it is in the relation of the primary colors, yellow, red, and blue, to the primary Euclidean shapes of triangle, square, and circle. While much of his theory involves specific testable examples, this peculiar correspondence has never been presented with a satisfactory explanation. His reasoning reads as follows. The square, whose essence is two horizontal and two vertical intersecting lines of equal length, symbolizes matter, gravity, and sharp limitation. The Egyptian hieroglyph for field is a square. Remarkable tension is felt when the straight lines and right angles of the square are drawn and experienced as a motion. All shapes characterized by horizontals and verticals may be assimilated to square form, including the cross, the rectangle, the Greek key, and their derivatives. The square corresponds to red, the color of matter. The weight and opacity of red agree with the static and grave shape of the square. The triangle owes its nature to three intersecting diagonals. Its acute angles produce an effect of pugnacity and aggression. It is the symbol of thought, and among colors, its weightless character is matched by lucid yellow. A circle is a locus point moving at a constant distance from a given point in a plane. It is the symbol of the spirit, moving undivided within itself. The ancient Chinese used circular elements to build their temples while the palace of the temporal sovereign was constructed in a quadrangular manner. The incessantly moving circle corresponds among colors to transparent blue. He moves beyond the three primaries to combine these shapes into an oval for violet, a rhombus for green, and a trapezoid for orange. This appears to be analogous reasoning to how Plato argued that the pyramidal tetrahedron is the shape best associated with the element of fire. But though we may find these correspondences to be the least compelling element of Itten's color theory, as they were taken up by Vasily Kandinsky, 
the yellow triangle, red square, and blue circle came to be amongst the most readily identifiable of Bauhausian symbols, showcasing what would become the school's eventual affinity for expressions of the primary and universal. But it would not be this venture into the logical side of the abstract that characterized Kandinsky's entrance to the Bauhaus. Itten shares the story of the painter's arrival. One day in 1922, shortly after Kandinsky's appointment to the faculty of the government Bauhaus at Weimar, Grofius, Kandinsky, Klee, and I were talking when Kandinsky turned to Clay and myself and asked, What subjects are you teaching? Clay said he was lecturing on problems of form, and I explained about my introductory course. Kandinsky rejoined dryly, Good, then I'll teach nature study. We nodded, and nothing more was said about the curriculum. For a number of years after this, Kandinsky gave instruction in analytical studies from nature. It is symptomatic of a lack of orientation in art schools today that the necessity of nature study can be debated. Perhaps Itten was obliquely editorializing on the path that both Kandinsky and the Bauhaus would concurrently take with the move to Dessau. Our earlier episodes noted the shift to industry that the Bauhaus was made to take due to the inflationary crisis. Serial production, after all, prizes considerations of the objective and universal, applying these to standardization and economies of scale. However, as Itten's stories of the uniform apartment buildings and the striped silk indicate, always striving for unity and consistency has its inherent limitations. It would be left to the following generation to further work out the implications of the subtle dialogue between objective and subjective and to reclaim the validity of subjective intuition. But as far as the Bauhaus was concerned, the dynamism of industry and color at the service of universalizing and abstract expression was the future. Though the man who formed this new center of gravity was himself an older expressionist, he was able to distill his ideology into a rarefied substance that we might still, correctly, designate as the epitome of modernism. Kandinsky and the Yearning for Eternal Form, up next on Lapsus Lima.